again, good morning. I hope that you all are doing well. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. We're back in Exodus, and we'll begin reading there in verse 13 in just a few moments. Since it's been such a, a long time since we've been in Exodus, um, um, I was going to spend some time reviewing, but I decided not to because then we would be here for quite a long time doing that, and we would miss um, uh, quite a bit of what we need to cover in our text. So I just want to say that we have been through uh, um, eight and a half chapters of Exodus so far, and we've come up to the place now where we're just over the second half of the, the plagues and the signs. We're getting into the, the seventh plague today, so seven out of ten. We're, we're just a few away from, from finishing up that particular narrative. But before we, we get going, when you, when you think about the order of things and how the plagues have been, being, have been built out from the, the river turning into blood and the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the, the, uh, uh, the plague that was put upon the, the death of the livestock uh, to the boils and now today the hail, what we understand in this is that there is an escalation of judgment that is, that is taking place within this passage, within this text. There's an escalating of intensity of the pain and the loss that Egypt is experiencing under the judgment of God. But the purpose, again, and the point of these things have always been the same, and that is to display the absolute sovereignty and authority of God over all of creation, including man. One thing to be sure, and we'll, again, we'll see that again this morning, is that the Lord is not one to be trifled with. He is not one to be ignored or to be disobedient to. He does as he pleases, and his glory and his name will be known. That is his purpose and his intent, and he has said it throughout. My name will be known. You will know me. One way or another, you'll know me through judgment or you'll know me through redemption. And my glory will be made known. Let's look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, of the Hebrews, let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you, to, struck you and your people with pestilence. And you, have been, you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Therefore, send Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into a safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word, the word of the Lord among the servants of the Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and on every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. And the hail, and there was the hail, and the fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. 
very heavy hail, such as never been seen in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. For there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out to the city, out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you are not yet in the fear of God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat had not, and the emmer were not struck down, for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, Israel, let the people of Israel go, just had the Lord had spoken through Moses. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his holy spirit, his, may his holy word that is inspired and inerrant be for our joy. And for, our, and, for our, uh, and for his glory. Amen. Praise the Lord. So as we move through this narrative, we're beginning the last three of the plagues. Often they are grouped together, and if, if you're splitting apart, they're usually grouped together as being the last three because they're lengthy and they have to do with the works of nature and what God uses as nature. And again, as I have said earlier, appropriately, this story is intensifying. It's, it's, it's growing, and you can feel it as you, as you read. And certainly we can see it in the, the, the brevity of the passage with the details, how the intensity is increasing. In the seventh plague, this is a plague of, ma of a massive hailstorm. And I hope that, that in it you could hear the severity of the text. The, the description of the text is for us to not only be able to envision it, but to understand the severity of this text. You're supposed to feel it. And the picture um, that we're getting to here is, is as if it's hell on earth. It's a scene of of, of, of the world almost coming to an end. It's, it's very apocalyptic. It's, it's like scenes from, a, um, from an exciting, thrilling movie about the destructive works of nature, like volcano and earthquake. This is a bad scene. And in some sense, we can somewhat sympathize because we understand how severe nature can be. I think we have examples of that unfortunately, from this past weekend. This is like an apocalyptic event. And we really don't get that kind of apocalyptic storms all the time around here. We really don't get hail very much. I, I can't remember the last time we've seen it here in Statesboro, at least for me, when I lived, since I've been living here. But we do get some pretty bad thunderstorms occasionally. We certainly get hurricanes, and we can understand the, the devastation that nature and storms can cause. You know, I never really knew how bad hail can, how bad hail can really be and how damaging it, it, it really could be. A, a couple weeks ago, I saw a, a YouTube video, you know, the, the ones that are kind of titled, uh, Worst Storms Ever Caught on Camera, right? 
and, and just a worst storm moments, right? And, and a couple of the clips in that particular uh, uh, videos were of hailstorms. And, and, and I knew that this passage was, was coming up, so I paid special attention, right? And I was like, well, let me be able to see this because I want to be able to understand how bad it was. And goodness gracious, hail is horrific. It is, it is horrific. I mean, pea-sized hail can cause a significant amount of damage to, to, to cars and, and houses and things like that. But when you get into baseball-sized hail or grapefruit-sized hail raining from the sky, reaching terminal velocity, hitting the ground in whatever may be in the way, that is not good. That causes significant damage. And one of the clips in that video was, was the guy was on his back porch and he was his pool. And man, those huge hail balls were hitting the pool and it looked like mortars were going off in the guy's pool. And then he panned over to his trees and his palm trees were literally, I not kid you, were just shredding before him as these things were hitting. This, his pool deck was cracking from it. Amazing. Shocking damage. At one level, I, I kind of would think that the, the boils would be the worst, but this is horrible. Because as the text tells us, is that whatever was left outside was going to be destroyed. If your slave was still outside, if your servant was still outside, they would be killed. If your beast or your livestock was outside, they would be killed. From all of your trees, from all your crops, would be destroyed. And when you put this on top of all the other signs and plagues, and then the ones that come, again, we see God putting on display the power and glory that he has over nature because he is the one and only true God. In our passage this morning, I think very exclusively and very explicitly, unlike some of the other the, uh, signs, we see the Lord telling Moses to tell Pharaoh that that's exactly what he wants to get across. He wants Egypt to know. He wants Pharaoh to know that it is I who is judging you. He wants us to know. He wants the world to know who he is. And these are four things that I think he is showing us what he wants us to know from this text. And again, this can go with all of the, the plagues. And that is first, he is the true God. He is the true God. You might remember uh, weeks ago now that, that I told you that Pharaoh was, was sort of a man ahead of his time. That, that he wasn't an atheist, he, was a, he believed in God, he was very, he, God, he was very religious, and, and sort of the kind of man that we see even today, right? Very religious in many ways, can tip his hat to, to God, but when confronted with God's word, the truth of God's word, when Pharaoh was confronted with God's word, now you're getting the offense, now you're getting the one who, who, like Pharaoh said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Why should I listen to your God? Right? That's the kind of, that's the kind of confrontation that we still see today. Right? We hear it in words like, like don't impose your beliefs and morals on me. Right? These are the same kind of reactions we hear today. Even now, we're not even talking about the gospel. We can be, just, we can be talking about the most, ver the most fundamental things, the most fundamental things that, that, that humanity has believed for thousands and thousands of years, except for now the last 10 years, has, has been widely accepted and has always been true about humanity. But if you get to the gospel, if you start talking about Jesus, and if you start talking about the cross, and you start talking about the resurrection, and man, when you start talking about sin, even if you talk about grace, boy, that's offensive. And forgiveness, and the need for atonement, and redemption, and the exclusivity of the gospel, then boy, howdy. In the right circles, you better buckle up for the vile tongue lashing 
from the self-proclaimed tolerant and the love is love crowd. Be prepared. And what it all comes down to is this, as they are replacing what is objectively real with what is subjectively choice. And God here is making that blatantly clear. The Lord, he comes to Egypt. And he brings this very objective reality called the plagues and the signs. And he thrusts them upon Egypt to encounter their subjective choice in false religion. Back in chapter 8, verse 10, Moses says to Pharaoh that the Lord will answer his request by saying, Tomorrow, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one. And we hear the same words and the same idea in our passage this morning. Looking at verse 13, the Lord speaks to Moses and he tells him to tell Pharaoh again to say what? Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me, right? Same command. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your peoples so that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth and the cosmos. Now this doesn't mean that God is saying, I'm the best God of out of all the gods. That I'm the most powerful of, of all the gods. It's sort of like someone we might say that this is, the, this is the best baseball player, right? Because we know that of many baseball players. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you need to know that I am the only God in the earth and there is no other. None. Which is totally against the Egyptian pluralistic claims of having many gods. But the Lord is, is saying very boldly, again, that objective truth in these, in these plagues, this religious pluralism that they have, that they, uh, that they worship to, which is the idea that all religions are valid and, and good and many gods, and, and along now with new religions and personal autonomy and, and earth worship, right? God is confronting these things as lies and false, and in the end, you will face righteous judgments. And here, Egypt as the, is, this, is this frightening, terrifying test case to all the world of this truth and of this reality. Now, we've, throughout our time in the plagues, we've brought up various different gods of that Egypt uh, worship that God was just dismantling as false and useless. And I think he's sort of doing the same here because the Egyptians also had a sky god. Right? The God of the, the skies. And I kid you, no joke, as the names have been kind of funny, this one's the best. Nut. That was the name of that goddess. Nut. And Nut was supposed to protect them from storms like this. Right? Weather played such an important role to, to their culture, right? For uh, agriculture and livestock and crops and trees, massively important to their culture. And just like us, we understand that weather's massively important. Some of the first things we talk about when we get together, when we get our coffee, is we're like, yep, how you doing today? Good to see you. All right. How's the weather? Man, weather's been great. First thing we talk about, because weather's important to us. Weather's important to them. Now, growing up in Florida, we, I understood weather was important to the, to the orange groves, right? If they freeze, oranges would die. And so they would pray to nut. They would sacrifice to nut. But here, when God says, I'm sending this storm, nut was worthless in preventing the storm. And why? Well, this is no news for us, because the Lord is the one and only true God. And he is Lord over everything, including the sky and the weather. Now, now, we don't believe in that kind of nonsense, do we? We don't believe in that kind of nonsense of nut, and if you remember the, the god of, the, uh, of the, the river Nile, happy, and the frog gods and all that. We're, we're modern, we're smart, we're, we're advanced, we're, we're progressive in the good way, right? Not progressive in the Marxist way, which is actually regressive, by the way. Today, we don't have 
altars in our houses to those to those gods, and 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 we're not worshiping, and we don't have to these little idols carved all around us, and we don't we don't do all that. But listen to the, listen to me. There is no way. There is no way that today, this morning, that you could come to me and convince me that in Statesboro, that there are Statesboro, that there is not plenty of people worshiping false gods today. Even if they're not called nut, they are called something else, called power and control and money and wealth and self-identity and sports and comfort and entertainment and success and on and on and on that list could go. And the reality for us is that even though the 24th, 21st century America is not Egypt, we get that. We're not Egypt in many ways. We think we're better. We've progressed in many ways and some good things and some bad things. But listen, we're really the same people with the same kind of tendencies and the same kind of worship of false idols. And the gospel calls people to come and die from those false idols. All these things that are actually killing you and leading you into false worship and then into judgment. These things that are killing us. The gospel calls us to come and die to those things. It calls us to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And to believe in him. And we call that faith. And he has told us and he has commanded us how we should live. But today when the gospel is preached... Just like Pharaoh, people squirm. People squirm. You can't say that. You can't tell me what to do. I'm not. God is. Here's his word. Because people want to live the way that they want to live. They, they know better than God. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Man, back to Genesis chapter 3. We're better than God. We know better. I know it's better for my life than some ancient history God of the Bible that's an ancient dusty book that has no relevance for my life. That's the argument. But the objective reality is, is look at the evidence around us. We're dying. We're dead. We're killing ourselves with our own sin. But here in Exodus, and just like the rest of the Bible, man, this is thematic throughout the Bible. This isn't just in Exodus, this is everywhere. The Lord is the true God. And as his church, we not, uh, not only gather under that revelation of truth from his word, we believe it. Which means that in our gatherings this morning, brothers and sisters, when we gather together, we are proclaiming that truth. We are proclaiming that, that the Lord is the one and only true God, that Jesus Christ is the one and only true God. We proclaim it as a theological truth. It's in our message. It's in the gospel. And in this gospel that we believe that God is the only true God and only he should be worshipped, not these dumb false idols that are, are killing us, we believe that that is still good news. It's not devastating news. To the sinner who loves their sin and who is enslaved to their sin, that's devastating to them. But to those who are being saved, as Corinthians tells, to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. And people squirm because they want to be their own God. They love their idols and they love their sin. And brothers and sisters, let's let this kind of settle deep for us as we all once The very thing that you're still at war with today. And we call them to repentance. And we call them to faith in the one true God who has sent his son to be Savior. We call them to repentance because we believe and know that God, this one true God, saves. Or 
The alternative is to face the full judgment and wrath of God, as we see in just a very minute way in Exodus chapter 9, as Egypt faced just a piece of it. So first, the Lord is the one true God, and second, He is mighty creator. Now, this might be self-evident to us as Bible-believing Christians, and, and, and for many of you, it's what you've been taught and raised uh, to believe from, from childhood, which is that's, that is just wonderful to have. But for some of you, this is not what you believe. Or maybe you uh, didn't believe it for a time. Or it isn't something that you were taught to believe. And yet we believe and know, we see the Bible again is explicitly showing to us over and over again that the Lord is the mighty creator. That he is the the mighty creator. Because here in the plagues of judgment, the Lord is putting on display his powers of creation against Pharaoh as weapons that only the creator himself can use. And the point is that these plagues did not just happen on their own. They're not not just random acts of nature. They happened in God's timing and at God's instigation for His purpose and through His chosen messengers, through blood, through frogs, through death, through gnats, through flies and boils and hail. And so again, back in verse 14, the Lord says, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And so not only is he saying he alone is the one and only true God, but he is, he is displaying his purpose uh, uh, first to us is that he is saying that my uniqueness of my omnipotence, because there is no one like me, right? There's, there's a uniqueness there, no one. Right? If I can say that no one is like me, then there's no one like me. That makes me unique. And God is saying, there's no one like me. There's no one as God like me. And in his uniqueness, he is saying, my uniqueness is in the display of my omnipotence. And my omnipotence. And that's something none of us can say. He's greater than the Egyptian gods. He's greater than Pharaoh. Man, these things are, these things are obvious. He's greater than, than the magicians. You remember that? And then verse 14, the Lord says, I am sending all my plagues, the full force of my plagues, on you yourself. You see that language there? On you yourself, which literally means against your heart, Pharaoh. The Lord is using all of creation against the heart of Pharaoh. Because all of creation obeys him. Because he is creator God. And second, we see, we see these things on display as mighty creator. He does these things for his own glory. For his own glory. Look at verse 16. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? Why did God give Pharaoh position and power and authority and wealth at this place at that time he says for this purpose i have raised you up to show you my power and that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth and what are the first three questions of the westminster shorter catechism who made you that's right calvin what else did god make everything And why did God make you in all things? For his glory. For his glory. God was making his glory known. That it would be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. That this is who he is. This is his power and his majesty. As mighty creator. What's amazing about this is that the Israelites would continue to tell their children about this. They would continue to tell their children and their grandchildren about the story of God delivering them and how he has delivered them. Deuteronomy 6. They sang it in their psalms. We see that in Psalm 78. We also see how the, the, the word of the plagues and the hail and the storms and the signs, these things were spread throughout the nations as well. Word spread that this Lord crushed Egypt. 
In Joshua chapter 9, Joshua met the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites said like, oh, you serve that God? The Philistines, even all the way in the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they became terrified when they faced the God of this people. Third, the, we see the emphasis of the mighty creator shows the Lord's terrifying authority over all creation. His terrifying authority over all creation. The, the plagues were supernatural demonstrations of God's power over all of the world that he had created. And there seems to be like a special reference in some sense to, in verse 22 all the, way, uh, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Because it says in verse 22 that everything growing in the fields of, of Egypt. And the same Hebrew word used for vegetation in verse 22 is the same word used in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation of the vegetation as God produced the land. And so the connection here is that God is telling us that when he sends his plagues against Egypt, he's destroying the very thing that he once created. And who can do that but God? Every plant, every animal, and every person that is out in the field, as the text tells us, as creator, he alone has the authority to do so. It's amazing when I was reading and studying this passage, and actually a couple weeks back when I was studying it, I thought, I, I just could not get my, out of my mind the story out of Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus and uh, all of his disciples, they get on a boat and they cross the, they're trying to cross the sea. And you all know the story. He's crossing the sea. Jesus is tired. He takes a nap. He takes a nap. And as he's taking the nap, a big storm comes upon them. And during the big storm, man, the, the, it was so bad that the disciples were, were just absolutely terrified. And, and, and this is interesting, right? Because they're not, uh, these, these guys weren't like uh, land lovers, right? These, these, some of these guys were experienced fishermen. They have been on the sea. They know what it's like when a storm comes up. They know what they're supposed to do to try to stay dry and to get to land safely. But when the fishermen start freaking out and are terrified by the storm, then you know things are really really bad. And the, the disciples, they, they're just freaking out in such a way that in some sense they're kind of perplexed. How could Jesus not wake up and see what's going on? And so they wake Jesus up and they're like, Jesus, we're about to die. Can't you see this? I mean, our boat, the, the text actually says that the waves were swamping their boat. And Jesus's words in the midst of all this, he says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? What in the world? Who can say that? Who could say that? And what does Jesus do then? He, he calms the storm. He rebukes the wind and the waves. I mean, he literally stands in the boat or he's sitting, maybe he's just sitting up or sitting there and he goes, wind, stop. Waves, you're done. Rain, we're wet, we're good. And it stops immediately. The boat calms down, the seas calm down, and the disciples who were now, who were once terrified by this storm, they now experience the power of the words of Jesus Christ to calm the storm. And their response is, is still terror and fear, but in a whole different way. And they say, what sort of man can do this? That he could calm even the winds and the seas obey him. Who? And I see this in here. And why? Because he has authority. And that's a, that's a level of authority that's beyond any of us can ever think and imagine what authority may be. This is sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent authority. And if we can be honest... That kind of authority is terrifying. And as we see this hailstorm that is terrifying and terrible, what is on display is that God, the Lord God, is the one and true God, 
and that he is mighty creator. And that brings us to our third point. And the third point is that he is the just judge. And again, this is not some mind-blowing point for us here at Sovereign Grace. I mean, this is like, this is like on repeat, isn't it? Play that song again. We like that song. He is the just judge. And the reason why we know this point is because we believe the Bible. We know that the Bible tells us it is, it's absolute truth and it's absolutely authoritative. And one of those absolute truths from the Bible is that the Lord is the just judge. And here in Exodus, we can see the Lord's execution of his justice upon the unrighteous and the wicked. And like so many other things, this idea does not sit well. This is one of those ideas that makes us squirm, that makes people squirm. Did he really just say that God is judge? And he could have just said God is loving, right? Wouldn't that have been a better thing to say? That would have been a better thing to say. That would, that would make more people feel more fuzzy inside. That would get more people in the church, maybe. But the passage is very clear. God is the just judge that he is holy and he is righteous and that he judges man and we know that that's repulsive to us sometimes and can be repulsive to our culture and let, again again i just gotta hit this home the people that will sternly disagree with that it's not because they're super intelligent and it's not because they're progressive in their thinking in such a way that they're too good for such archaic thought in archaic things. It is, it is it's not because that they are high and mighty and they can't believe such thing. No, the reason is, is because they love their sin. And they love being captivated by themselves, their sin, in such a way that it deceives them and they suppress the truth, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. And again, in some way, in some level, we can understand that. And as we stand here in Exodus at the seventh sign, the Lord judges Egypt. Look at verse 15. The Lord says to Pharaoh, For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And what is God saying? He says, I've just been flexing just a very little bit, and look how much I have put you down to almost nothing. I could have already, with one plague, totally wiped you out. Why do I need 10? Because I want 10. I could have put you down with one. But I have my purposes in the 10. We've already talked about those. Look at verse 17. The Lord lays out the accusation then of why he is judging them. He says, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. The diso their sin of disobedience to his word. God clearly has given his word to them. Let my people go that they may serve me. And in their sin, they said, no. God has clearly given his word. God has clearly given us his word. And any disobedience to God's word is sin. I mean, that's the line. It's as clear as that. And in that, if we sin, then God will judge us according to his righteousness. The sin of the disobedience to his word. Not to mention all the other atrocities that they have committed. In verse 18, the just judge again sends his judgment upon them. It says, behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause heavy hail to fall. Such has never been seen in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. And this will be the worst storm that has ever hit Egypt. Well, that's something. Talking about unprecedented. And yet, even after this storm hits, I mean, think about this. We, just, we read the whole text. I mean, even after the storm hits, and even after Pharaoh says, I've sinned, and the Lord is right, and Egypt is wrong, and he asks for prayer, Moses, knowing the hardness of his heart and knowing Pharaoh, he sees right through it. He knows Pharaoh just wants relief, just like the person who says, who, who's only sorrow because they, because they got caught. Not because they did something wrong. And they understand they're the ones that were in the wrong. 
We've seen this story played out over and over again. Let me paint us a picture that's just a little bit bigger. We were created as humanity to live in obedience to God in dependence upon Him. But as Romans 1 is being true, says that we exchanged a truth for a lie. And we worship the created rather than the creator. And what does this mean? What does this mean for, for man? It means on a daily basis of rejecting God. And when you reject God on a daily basis, what would we then expect to happen? But just judgment. And in that just judgment, what do we see happening all around us in the daily rejection of God? We are seeing a people like Egypt happening right before our eyes and feet. We are seeing people being made undone. We see them being unmade. Unmade. Psychologically. Minds becoming disordered. Physically scarred and damaged. Emotional darkness. Mental breakdowns, relationships fractured, addictions and sickness, and on and on. We are all, all all of humanity is on this road in our sin to death, which death is what? A picture of ultimate uncreation, being unmade. And Egypt is... With all this insane hell, hell, this hell on, hell on earth, this apocalyptic picture is, is literally a picture of life in meltdown. It's, it's a life completely in, in, in meltdown under God's judgment. God hates sin. And God is serious about sin. And when we hear of this kind of judgment on Egypt, we have to understand that it comes out of a deep holiness and righteousness that will not be violated. Especially by his creatures without just punishment. And brothers and sisters, this should be sobering to us. Because this judgment in Exodus is only pointing to something bigger and far worse and far more terrifying. Because just as the Lord told Pharaoh that judgment is coming, again, in his word, he has revealed to us, and he has told all of humanity that judgment is coming. Real judgment is coming. In fact, a, a judgment that's very reminiscent to what we have just read in Revelation chapter 11 and, in verse, and chapter 16. When chapter 16, when those bowls of judgment are opened up and poured out, it sounds eerily familiar. Revelation 16, verse 21. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of hail. Again, like Pharaoh, what do we do? Even in God's righteous judgment, what does man do? They harden their hearts to God. Brothers and sisters, humanity is not the victim of sin. We are the propagators and the perpetrators of it. Man deserves the just wrath and judgment of God. And these plagues serve us a huge warning to repent of sin and to believe, not like the Pharaoh did. That, that's not faith. That's the, the fire insurance kind of faith which isn't faith at all. The kind of faith that we are told is the kind of faith that the Bible tells us what faith is, hope in the things that are unseen, the godly grief that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. And fourth, our last point, as we have seen that our God is a just judge, as much so, brothers and sisters, he is a gracious savior. So as creation is unraveling around Egypt, and it seems like creation is being is unraveling around us, we also see and understand, living, living in this, that, that God is so good and so kind and so merciful, and that he is a gracious savior. 
And even in this, this passage of, of judgment, we see God's mercy, we see his compassion, and we see his kindness, even to a, a, a Pharaoh and to Egypt. Again, he continues to give him his word. He continues to send his, his prophet to him to reveal himself to them and tell him of his purposes. These are my purposes that you will know. They'll give him his intentions and his commands, just like he has given us. He's given us everything that we need to know. He warns them by this word. And the very fact that the Lord has given us his word is just mercy. Is his mercy. And brothers and sisters, God's word to us is a sign that God is merciful to all. And second, he, couldn't, he could have just obliterated them, right? That was, what mercy there? I could have just obliterated you. And doesn't that include all of us? Doesn't that include humanity? That he could have just obliterated us and just said, well, that was worth, wasn't worth it. Couldn't he just obliterated all of us? And third, verse 20 and 21, the Lord gives them a warning. Isn't that crazy? He's like, let me give you a piece of advice. In the middle of the passage, let me give you a piece of advice. If I knew that there was a big hailstorm, I think I would bring my animals in and I would make sure my people were in too. But that's just me. You do what you, you do you do. And we see what they do. Some of them do, some of them don't. Some listen, some don't. Some, some fear the word, the text actually says, and some didn't. That's God's mercy. And fourth, again, the Lord answers the prayer of Moses. Again, knowing that, that Pharaoh's confession is just a sham. It's just a lie. And lastly, verse 26, thrown right there in the, again in the passage. We see how the Lord graciously spares his people from the hailstorm. And again, we, we can just kind of work with this just for a second. Is that are the Israelites... That much better than the Egyptians? Are they, are they more pure? Are they any purer? Are they, are they more righteous? Have they pursued the Lord and worshipped Him in, in holiness and in, in faith in such a way that they would deserve to be spared in this way? Well, surely we know that there's a difference between Israel and, and the Egyptians. Difference in kinds of sins and atrocities, we get that. But what makes the difference is not Israel's righteousness, but God's grace. And God's grace in, in the keeping of his covenant promises. That he is sovereign in his purposes, and he will, by his sovereign grace, save the people in whom he chooses. Paul's making this same point in Romans chapter 9. Where he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16, so, so then it depends not on human will or excursion, but on God who has mercy. Now this sounds, this sounds real weird, and it sounds real crazy to the world, but brothers and sisters, when we read stuff like this, this should make us happy. And not in, a, not in a prideful happy because we want people to, to experience the just wrath of, 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 the sin, or of their sin and we want God's judgment upon, upon them and we can go na 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 No, none of that. But we are happy and we are joyful that by God's grace, for some reason, and somehow we are sitting here and we are just delighting in his, in, in his grace and his mercy in such a way that we get to experience joy and fulfillment and flourishing in such a way that, that no, no one other could ever experience except by the grace of Christ. And the reason is, is because we have been saved by the blood of his son. Who took our punishment, who took on the wrath that was due to you and to me. We didn't earn this grace. It isn't something that, that we received because we earned it, because we showed up to church enough times and finally God did something. Because he owed us. It's all of grace, unmerited, 
and freely given. And, you know, in this whole thing, idea, remembering that he is our gracious Savior. Listen, brothers and sisters, I, I know that as Christians, it, it sometimes feels like and it seems like that everything is against us, doesn't it? It seems like everything is just so hard and so, so difficult. The fight of sin is just so tough and it's so long. Suffering is so real. And if you've ever been through it, then you, then you know suffering is real. Pain is hurts. Relationships can be strained. Church can be hard at times. Even sharing the gospel, this such good news is difficult to do. As we see in the curse, right? Genesis chapter 3, there's so much toiling. There's so many thorns and thistles that we have to go through every day that pokes us and prods us and scratch us. But in this idea of seeing that God spares his people and saves his people by his grace, Christian, think with me for just a moment of how wonderful it is to be a Christian. You deserve eternal death and condemnation and separation from God, but, but now by grace you are a child of God. Adopted, given his Holy Spirit, made new. And as hard as it can be, the daily life of, daily, of, of, of fruitfulness and faithfulness, he is with us in such a way that he is sanctifying us. And as we read last week from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he is going to complete that work in you. And most especially, don't forget this, Christian, because of his grace, that he is preparing and has prepared for you one day to receive an inheritance that is undefiled and imperishable. And one day, one day there is coming a new heavens and a new earth for you where all the struggle and sin and sickness and pain and death will be no more. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So in an age where, where no, one is, no one really is certain of anything, church, we are very certain on these things. That the Lord is the one true God. That He is mighty creator and that He is the just judge and He is a gracious Savior. Have assurance and, and certainty in him alone. Depend on him and rely on him. That this good theological truth is where we, we dig down deep roots and, and ground our lives upon that solid foundation. That our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I do not dare to trust in any sweetest frame but I only lean on Jesus' name. So on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And as the song repeats, all other ground is sinking sand. And all God's people say, Amen.